0: This week on The Function Room, what the butler saw. John Butler is a mathematician turned computational neuroscientist, a lecturer in maths and statistics at TU Dublin who looks at the brain mathematically and tries to figure out why the brain does what it does. We talk about our senses, why it's good to get questions from a child, what a neural network cares about. You know, lots of stuff. But first of all, what is a computational neuroscientist?
1: Well... It's a funny thing is a computational neuroscience could also be called a mathematical neuroscientist or a simulation neuroscientist. Uh, what neuroscience has right now is a lot of data, but it lacks maybe a lot of theories, rules. And so a computational neuroscientist, someone who maybe sits in between trying to look at this data and looking to see are there mathematical rules or mathematical simulations that can recreate a lot of what people are seeing in neuroscience data.
0: And 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 neuroscience data is
1: a big word as well. Uh, That's how people behave, but also how the brain works or also how the brain might uh, have aberrant workings. Like if you have a neurodevelopmental disorder, such as autism or uh, a developmental disorder like Parkinson's disease. And so computational neuroscience hope to understand that by building models, uh, mathematical models.
0: The data, what does the data look like? Is it a vast array of voltages, or elect- electrical currents, or is it anecdotal response to stimuli? Is it a lot of I hit I hit X amount of patients' knees, and their leg popped up it, like like the cartoon neuroscience. Very
1: question. much so. Actually, it's all of the above. So, um, it, actually, on my uh, with my hat as a behavioral neuroscientist, I've done a lot of EEG experiments. So that's recording the electrical signals of the brain. Um, uh, so, you put on something that looks like a swim, swim hat, it will record up to maybe 160 uh, sites on the scalp, and what you do is you repeat an experiment or a stimulus, and you look how the brain responds by repetition. You sc- separate the noise and the signal, the output. Um, so, one way I look at the brain is I look at an input, which could be a flash of light, and an output, which is the electrical signals. And I try to figure out a function that converts that, the flash of light into the signal I see on the skull. Um, but I also actually, on a more simple level, I also do it for behavioral responses. So maybe, but not dissimilar to, I would do experiments and I have done experiments that can last 10 days on an individual, where I would put them in a dark room. I'd show them what looks like a very cheap Star Wars uh, star field, and it'd move very slowly. I'd move very slowly forward to the left or forward and to the right. And I'd get the people to re- click left or right. And I'd have to repeat that again and again, such that I can, with the data, describe how good they are at the task. And then I would use mathematics to predict how good they are um, if we change something in the stimuli. Or, and this gets to the word multi-sensory as well, is I can do it with where I can move the people in the dark using uh, robots, which we can talk about, and have the field. So I can separate the body motion and the vision, and then put them together. And I can uh, make mathematics to see, can I predict how someone can use body motion? So move them in the dark, move them with just vision, and see how they use the two together. Because um, that's the thing is, I want to see is, does one plus one equal two? So Mm. if I have vision cues, so our rich environment and then our body cues, do I use them together or is it one plus one is one or some other more complicated formula? But actually, it's quite a straightforward formula um, uh, that actually is one of the first I really fell in love with uh, as a researcher. It's a very simple formula that says whichever sensory system is better. So if I'm very good at uh, figuring out how I'm moving left or right with just vision, I use vision a bit more. But if it gets darker, I'll use my body information more. And actually, our brain is constantly doing this game of saying, what's the best bit of information? I don't only want to use the best information. I also want to use the less useful information. I weigh it up. So constantly, the brain is constantly weighing up this information and combining them together. And there's a term called maximum likelihood integration or optimal integration, which says that we will use the information as best we can. And I've looked at it for vision and body cues, but I've many researchers have done the exact same work with vision and sound and so forth. And actually this is a simple little rule that's pretty much A plus B is equal to C and it keeps working. And it's, it, it's such a simple, elegant rule and it, it works at a behavioral level, but also people have shown it uh, in the brain at an individual neuron, that there are neurons in the brain They'll take an in information from sound and information from vision and use that information together in this, using this simple mathematical formula.
0: Um, um, how does the brain know which is better? Because it's all happening instantaneously. Is it, yeah. hurt my, I've hurt myself less by using sight, therefore I'm going to trust that. Well, is it, is, the... is it, is it a constant feedback of its own? it's a bit like of a statistical constant feedback. model yeah. it
1: is a constant feedback of your own statistical model and so this the, the thing that first amazed me uh, when i started working in neuroscience was i just like everyone thinks about development and you're going oh well you know there's this thing that the brain doesn't develop until maybe 20 but that's everything's thinks about that's executive function like you know Will I put my hand in the fire? Will I drink too much alcohol and get sick of myself when I'm 14 at my local disco? The reason why you do that is because your brain isn't fully formed and you don't know when to stop. But actually, even sensory information isn't fully developed until the age of 12 or 13. So I was involved with uh, research looking at the development of how we combine audio and vision together uh, in uh, neurotypical children and children with autism. And what we found was that actually most people, so it like a lot of neuroscience experiments initially, they're very abstract. So this is a game where we got uh, the children to click a button when they saw a red circle or they heard a beep or if the two came together. And it's called a speed of response task. And they have to click as fast as they can. Uh, but what we have there is we can say uh, mathematically, I can look to see is Do they use audio only? Or do they use visual only when they have the two together? And what actually happens is when they have the two together as a child, they don't use them in a, the best way because their brain hasn't fully formed. The brain hasn't made these connections between sight and sound can come together. That thing about the statistical environment is something we learn. It's not something that's innate. Mm. Uh, and so what we found was the brain signals, we recording EEG, and we had behavior, and we did a bit of modeling as well. It showed that... Uh, it develops around 12 or 13 is when the child brain looks a bit like an adult brain. And this is something very simple. While with the children with autism, it was delayed by one or two years more. It did develop in the end, but that delay is a vital period. And uh, that means that when they're hitting secondary school, they're still not able to truly get the signal from noise when people are speaking in a noisy environment. And so it's just a small little thing, but... Those two years are really vital years as a child. And, you know, it's very easy to talk about behavior, but if the environment isn't nice uh, and so forth. So the mathematics was very useful to model that and make predictions. It is not a definitive answer. Yeah. It is a trend, we'll say. And that's
0: always a problem with these uh, at the minute. So you you get the data in, you you run, do you run something? I say run, like I don't even know what we're running here, but you... you you, you, something analyzes the data, spots a pattern, sees whether a function uh, of x's and y's would produce this pattern, applies that, um, uses that function in a predictory sense, then runs another experiment to see if there, if people's responses or the brain's elect- is the same as this, is, is the same and, as the predicted thing.
1: And and initially, you do something very childish. You go so, um, if you have audio and visual is audio-visual together just A plus V? And that's yes. it's a stupid assumption, but it's not a bad assumption to start with. Yes. And so if it is the same as A plus V, you go, okay, they're not really doing anything with the information. Two areas of the brain are just working. But if they do something different, then you start looking at, maybe I can think about how mathematically, how would I connect the brain or how is the brain connected and look at that. And this thing about environment, as you get much older, you start using an internal model a bit more is the belief, uh, is what data is suggesting is that actually, um, uh, you actually might be more prone for audio and visual illusions. So audio and visual illusions is when um, you, uh, you mistake a sound coming from one area when it's coming from another, because you combine them a different way. So the simplest example of that we have every single day is when we all go to cinema, we believe that we hear the sound coming from the lips of the person on the screen, but the sound's coming from the speakers to the left and right. But our brain it has this magical ability to kind of fool us. As we get older, our brain is slightly more prone maybe to fool us because it's spent its whole life thinking that sound and vision should come together. So therefore they will always come together. Uh, and this starts becoming a bit more dangerous uh, for example, I look at uh, how we use body and vision. So if you're walking around your environment, a very simple example is if you have a van in front of you and the van moves, so it fills up your whole vision. Do you know you're moving or is the van mo- moving? Well, younger people know oh, my feet are on the ground, that van's moving. But there's a moment sometimes where you might suddenly believe I'm moving and the van is static. And as you get older, there's a slightly higher chance that you might start believing the van is not moving, you are. And if that happens, you might try to move yourself again to adjust your fall, but that will result in a fall. So mm. there, is, uh, there are behavioral experiments from a researcher called Fiona Newell in Trinity, who's uh, shown that a, people who are slightly prone for this auditory visual illusion are slightly more likely to get falls. And that, once again, when I think about that mathematically, I think about the, the statistical model of it and that actually they start using more internal information than external information. So once again, when I think about the brain, I always think of the function that takes in X, Y and Z information. And the question is, how important is that information then? As your sensory system changes, maybe you downweight what's coming in and you upregulate what's internal. So you have this very simple thing: is that you actually might rely upon more prior information, and
0: therefore might be more prone for illusions and so forth. Uh, so, so it your brain is uh, like making decisions based on the weighting it accords different inputs, almost in the way. You would make a planning decision based on the weighting you give environmental versus housing versus political. Exactly, exactly that.
1: And the thing is, we all make bad decisions because we mess up those weights. Hmm. The brain is never perfect with those weights, but it tries to do the best it can. But your prior exposure is what kind of drives the weights, you know. So, you know, if you're more left leaning, you'll of course weigh environmental things. Yeah. Uh, if you're another way, maybe you'll uh Way things other in other fashions. So therefore, your prior also takes into account
0: how you weigh as well. You know, so uh, for uh, for people who think they don't understand statistics, that they realize they don't realize they're actually implementing the basics of statistics all every, the time, every second of the day. You do. You look at data that's coming out of the brain, which is a result of inputs, and you run models on them, and you're obviously with computing and robotics and all that. Have you reached any conclusion about how stuff is stored in the brain? Like, is a is there is there a byte? Is there a megabyte? Like, yeah. like I know you're not. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know how brains are studied. Whether you can get no, down no, to that, the cell, a, you know. Yeah, yeah. Do, that, you, do you see the ones and zeros, okay. are there an, are there analog? So, um. I, I'll answer that is the storage
1: I know nothing about um, that's not my area but maybe maybe that question about the analog uh, I'm more about the instantaneous responses Yeah. Uh, let's call it like that is um, the brain as an analog is um, it's this thing called a gap junction is the term is uh, The brain needs a certain amount of information for a neuron to respond. And so the analog example is, uh, it's not a great one when you think about it, but every neuron needs to get, if you think of a neuron as a bucket of water, it needs to be filled up with enough water such that it overflows. And then the neuron will say something to someone beside it. Um, And then that responds and cascades up. I only really look at what's called sensory motor responses. They're very instantaneous there is much more complicated stuff out there, as you say, is how do people remember things? How do we, um, uh, how do we recall? How are these things sparked? And um, that's sl- different areas, but also still a very ongoing research area. It's such a complicated question. Um, I try to simplify life just to think of us as being, we take in something, we output. Um, and in that scenario, how would I view How we bias something is how we think about how many neurons are connected. So the less neurons connected, the less weight and bit of information is given. So that's a simplification, but that's kind of how I view it, is that if two areas are not connected, they'll not talk to each other. So therefore, they'll they'll not be weighted, you know, church and state separation, for example. But if you have an intermeshing of neurons, then that means two people have to talk to each other at the same time. And that's how biases can happen. Um, But that more complicated question is how do we store information is still a very much ongoing thing. And it's really,
0: it's a really complicated question. And uh, mm, I I can't address sadly. Maybe one for another, uh, another, uh, send me the names of any storage experts, you know, uh, Yeah, no, I'll get them later on. (laughs)
1: Like we were even looking at examples of what working memory is on a short term recently about like, and uh, I don't think it would I don't think the answer would satisfy anyone except for computational neuroscientists.
0: When you, when a subject is being studied uh, and they're subjected to stimuli, so you've got people, you're isolating the senses or you're doing various experiments to see what their response is and how they balance it. To what extent do you have to build some mathematics for the fact that the person is aware they're in an experiment? Like what happens people's, senses and their weightings when they're not walking down the street but they have looked at their calendar that day and said oh I'm going into John's experiment today better wear a clean shirt and so, uh, you know you, make sure I have yeah. plenty of sleep and all this kind of thing how does what does that do to the to the sums can you spot the data from the because yes. you can't observe people in the street unless you have an enormous uh, yeah, obser- yeah, yeah. observatron the- which doesn't exist but they're, they're clearly up for it are down for it so what happens then
1: well so you've asked uh, the exact question why maybe people are uh are less maybe engaged with some computational neuroscience because a lot of time with the models we make they're the ideal and because i've been very fortunate to have like 20 years of doing behavioral and electrophysiology uh experiments on different people, I know that real data is noisy. Just to cut
0: in there, what what does an electrophysiology experiment uh, look like? That's the
1: recording the electro signals of the brain. Sorry. Uh, Recording the electro signals of the brain. Uh, And um, if you do that, you know that real data is very, very noisy. It's noisy because um, the methods we use to record the data are noisy. EEG is very prone. uh, Because it records electrical signals, if you blink, that looks much bigger than our brain response because the muscles are electrical signals. So there are all these things called artifacts that you need mathematics to pull out. Um, uh, so the problem is, right now, a lot of the models are on the ideal, the perfect human. Uh, but like more and more now, we are looking at ways of break, like as I are saying, breaking the model to show that actually we can get a range of responses. Hmm. Um, uh, but once again, it's that thing is... It's only that kind of stuff is in its infancy now. Um, Modeling, if you think of the classic mathematics, you go, there is one answer, and that's the right answer. You have to combine modeling with statistics to bring in, there are many answers. These are the more likely ones. But the machine or the model has to break along the way. And so uh, that's not that new. But it's it's in there now that people more and more want to see noisy data and noisy models.
0: the and, one thing and, I um, think yeah. is what are you do you think that your way that in the next five to ten years what you will be analyzing is a ton of data from wearable technology where at the well people will still be aware they're in an experiment, but at the very least they're interacting with a normal environment. They're walking, they're driving they're at a red light, yep. they no, are getting into uh, an argument so I... <laughs> or they're they're buying, they go to the shop and the thing they want isn't there you know all of those things will 100%. that'll be the next uh, petabyte of data you will be getting
1: yep yeah, 100% like right now eh, there are bits of that data out there already and uh, the issue sometimes with the very very big data is it can answer any question but maybe not the question you want uh that's very difficult so that's why it's controlled but actually i've be, i've been so fortunate along my ways i've been um Is a Zelig in the Woody Allen movie that he turns up all all moments? I've been a bit of a Zelig uh, with respect to this movement of using virtual reality and also doing movement recordings uh, in the wild. Uh, When I was working in Germany, um, I was working in virtual reality. So virtual reality headsets back then cost 20,000 to get what now a child gets for 300 euros. And so I was very much looking at how people explore in a more naturalistic way. But I also was involved doing brain recordings while people were being moved. And myself Mm -hmm. and a lab in Trinity, uh, we were some of the first to record the brain while actually people were being moved on like a roller coaster. Uh, And we were able to do this and uh, it went very well. And then since then, there's been a whole movement. Uh, it's called mobile brain imaging. And I've been involved with it, where people are actually doing brain recordings while people are walking. Mm. Now, initially, they're very simple experiments uh, and they're quite controlled. They're not in the wild yet as an outside. Um, I'll give an example that I'm particularly proud of this series of studies uh, with people I uh, worked with in the matter, where we were recording people with Parkinson's who have a movement disorder. Uh, we are recording their EEG, their brain signals, while they were just stepping, step, step, step. And we also record their brain signals while they're sitting. So two times, sitting or stepping. But they had to do something at the same time. They had to click a button every time we had a screen from every time they saw an X. So they'd, be, they'd see a plus on the screen, plus on the screen, plus on the screen, and then they see an X, and they'd click a button. And we are looking not about how they were walking, but how their brain was doing the, the secondary task is what you call it. And um, what was great about this experiment was uh, we were separating in Parkinson's as the disease progresses, there's something called freezing a gait. As the disease progresses, you start freezing to the ground. It's very debilitating. Um, it, it also affects the confidence of a lot of people with Parkinson's because you can freeze at any point. So you could be crossing a road and you freeze. That's a terrifying prospect. Now, don't freeze for long. And actually, if they get some feedback to their legs, they'll start moving. But So we were looking at what we found was this was not using mathematical models. This was actually using a lot of signal processing. Um, We were able to separate out the difference between what part of the brain was causing, what was different between these different types of Parkinson's, more progressed Parkinson's. And maybe there's no surprise here because Parkinson's is called a movement disorder. But we saw that actually the people with the more progressed movement disorder had to recruit more of their uh, motor area. To do the simple button press. Well, younger people and people with less progressed Parkinson's never really had to recruit their motor area to make the simple thing. So while behaviorally the two all three groups look quite similar, they responded as quickly as each other. The brain was doing something very, very different when they were sitting. And then when we had them walking, we saw that the brain signal was really quite different for people with Parkinson's. So that's a very small, not quite in the wild event, but you know it's. It can now hopefully be transferred. So th- I was very fortunate to be working with neurologists uh, at that time. So I learned a lot about Parkinson's, and by learning a lot about Parkinson's, I was able to analyze the data in a different way, such that I could actually separate the data using a straightforward way and communicate this. And it's I'm particularly proud of the study because it, it was lovely. It was a lovely. Uh, it was a PhD student who was an MD as well, and it, it was just a very fruitful collaboration for myself. I learned a lot. I probably learned more than the student. But it it made me think about this. And now, even in the last five years, people are building small brain recording devices that can actually be like almost like hearing aids that you can wear and record the brain signal. And maybe you can predict or help someone predict when there might be overloading. Mm. And that might reduce the stress in the environment. It's not what we were interested in. As in, like, it's not what we're going in that direction, but other people will.
0: The so thing at is, some at some stage, you could be looking at trip switches for the brain. Yeah, saying,
1: look, like you're like it's already kind of now in your your like that red zone thing that people love to talk about, like for football players. Like there was this, yeah. uh, Erling Erling Harland, uh, uh the Pep Guardoli was asked like, uh, how come Erling hasn't been much injured much right now he said well if you pay 50 million for a player we observe him 24 7 and we know when he's entering his red zone okay um now none of us uh, well we're all worth 50 million in our own way but we are not no, no one's paid 50 million for us uh, but more and more people will be observing if they have the brain and the behavioral thing maybe they can be aware of the red zone and there are so many diseases where they can function so perfectly in our environment but when the environment stresses them, they might not be aware that the environment is stressing them. And not even, even healthy people, like maybe, you know, this stuff, sometimes we don't know when we're actually very tired. Yeah. Sometimes it's after the fact is when I go, oh, I was really cranky. It turns out I didn't do very well, but we need, sometimes our body needs that feedback. And those kinds, of, as you say, in the wild, that kind of brain recording or that kind of data can be used to helpfully predict someone saying, Hey, sit down for a bit. Um, uh, and that's something that I, I I reckon we'll see in the next 5 or 10 years, a lot of studies looking at that um, 100% looking, looking, no about
0: that. Uh, I was reading something you wrote where, as ever, things that are written for children are the best things for adults to read because they have a habit of distilling down exactly what I need to know about our senses uh, tell me about it in terms of multisensory, where can that Go with say people who have been diagnosed on with various on various spectrums of different types of brains. What where is that going?
1: Well, so the learn more we learn about things like multisensory, for example, is you can if someone has uh, so there's a paper I'm on. uh, I'm uh, now it just says I am an ego maniacal. There's a paper I did that I was very uh, excited by when I was. Uh, I moved to America after Germany where and I worked in a place called the well I w- first worked in CCMY, which is City College uh, Barack Obama's alma mater and then I moved to somewhere called the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the whole time I was working with a research group founded by an Irish guy called John Fox and uh, we were doing all that work on autism and we were doing so many experiments day-to-day experiments looking at children with autism and the big thing in research is if you're doing experiments on children with autism, all the papers say children with autism are different from children without autism. And there is this very worrying thing that people the thing is a lot of experiments are not reproduced. One of the reasons for this is it's not nefarious. It's just a lot of experiments have to show a difference. And so we were doing all the experiments. We were showing that sensory development in a slightly different way with children with autism. Multisensory development was a bit delayed. And so I gave the example is I wasn't on this paper, but in the same lab, they're looking at lip reading. And so children with autism, we all lip read. We don't know, it, but we actually do lip read. We don't lip read to find out the word. we more used for timing. And that's why we get weirded out uh, when the sound and vision are slightly delayed. And so we were doing a series of studies looking at, uh, they were doing a series of studies and we did some follow-up from right, looking at audiovisual uh, speech detection. And so that seems like, Not so important on some level, but what we found was when it was very noisy, children with autism, as I said, like with simple beep and flash, developed it later. So once again, if they're in a very noisy environment, they're less able to pull out the sound of, for example, the teacher or one of their mates telling them a joke than someone beside them. Now, how is that going to affect you socially if you're having to use more power to actually get context? There, like for older people, for example. Uh, and the same thing like they're not the same but a lot of older people stop going to pubs when their hearing fades because it's too stressful an environment and also as alzheimer's develops that stress is too much but these children are right, young children are having similar stressful things so there are many sensory cues so if you help them learn these sensory cues which is something that is learned from development you might be able to help them in a less stressful way um and there are many like uh, sensory interventions but the paper i w- was interesting what seems contradictory is, we also saw that a lot of people with autism, a lot of people at uh, neurotypicals, had very simple, similar sensory responses. And we did a whole paper on showing that actually, let's not always show that there's absolute difference between children with autism and children without autism. If we give them simple stimuli, their brain responds in a similar way to age-matched other groups. And so I uh, we wrote this paper looking at sound and touch, and showed that the two groups were identical. That was a hard paper, harder paper to write than a lot of the other papers, because I had to bring a lot of mathematical models and simulations to show are the methods we're using good enough to show differences and not show differences. Uh, and that paper uh, um, took a long time to write, and it, it had a lot of maths, whatever. But, uh, but really, the moral of the paper was a lot of people are saying children ought to have noisy sensory brains. And we just found that was a bit too glib, maybe. And actually, it's more nuanced. And what we were saying is, hey, I understand that it's simple to say that, but let's be a bit more nuanced. They actually have similar responses. That paper now, uh, um, as an academic, you get emails when your paper gets cited by other uh, things. And every second citation I get is a passive-aggressive citation saying, everyone else believes their brains are noisy, except for this person. (laughs) <laughs> well there's another group of people saying this is great someone showing similarities so that thing is um there's never going to be a definitive answer there's nuance and even among people who are very embedded in the field nuance sometimes can be lost as well uh but the thing is i'm saying is if you can show that there are similarities between children with autism and children without autism maybe that would suggest they can develop in similar ways if maybe subtle training difference or changing the environment in subtle ways that actually are hugely beneficial uh, uh and you know that's why having intervention early which is such a complicated thing is so important but also that same thing is there are examples with people Alzheimer's I'm less of with that research but they do look at multi integration in Alzheimer's, for example because um, that might be a a, a trigger warning um as well so it's on the two levels but for different reasons uh
0: speaking of online you are involved in an online teaching project uh with a difference can you tell me about that
1: yeah no i've had the pleasure uh when lockdown initially happened across the world um a lot of neuroscientists and computational neuroscience kind of went oh what the hell what are we going to do and there was a, a group of Primarily based in America, but some in Europe as well. I decided why don't we set up a summer school? Because a big thing as a PhD student is doing a summer school, where you go somewhere for a week and you get intensive education with some of the best and brightest, and it's a very formative experience. But so when lockdown happened, a lot of people couldn't do these summer schools, uh, and so we uh, there's a group of us, uh, and I was peripheral initially to the group. Uh, Try to make materials um, called Neuromatch Academy for students. Uh, we we're primarily aiming for PhD students, but um, we got a very different, uh, we got many different kinds of students coming to learn about computational neuroscience. We, we developed these materials, that uh, every day is a different kind of topic. So, uh, first day is the mathematics of um, uh, building models. Uh, so not as in specific, but like, why do we build models? What are we trying to ask? What kind of questions can different models get? So And then you build up saying, this is the type of model to spend a day learning about this kind of mathematical model. And it went all the way up to uh, computational uh, neuroscience, which, uh, the end of it, which is machine learning, which I'm sure we'll have a chat about. Um, but what we did was we made it, it was designed very nicely. Is it, it, um, it was Penn. I never remember a state or a university. Uh, was one of the uh, main leaders. Of so we made every day had its own website with videos embedded. All the videos were reviewed by other people, such that it was high quality and also translated to subtitles in other languages. So we had people from all the world, but 300 people just gave their time for free to develop these materials. And then in the first year, we had 6,000 students from 100 countries attend for th- three weeks and we made sure that it was low cost for anyone who couldn't pay or free. And uh, it's now running four years. And on average, we have about six to 7,000 from undergraduate up to professionals who want to learn about computational neuroscience and machine learning. And actually this year, uh, and it's something Ashan said, we have something called Climate Match, which is data science for climate change. Because a lot of neuroscientists, because we have such uh, useful tools, Are very interested in climate, and that was one of the objectives of NeuroMatch. Was also how can we reduce the carbon footprint by not bringing er everyone across the world to one location? Can we do it online? And uh, I think we've been pretty successful at it. Uh, uh, But more importantly, while there is three weeks where we have teaching assistants who work with people, we also make the materials free for anyone who wants to use them whenever they like. So anyone in the world can use these, and they have been used by other people. So. a group of Arab-speaking neuroscience have taken them and uh, converted them such that they can train Arab speakers such that their maths isn't the problem, their neuroscience is the problem. It's actually getting the language right such that they can then move on to do PhDs around the world. A lot of the initial barriers for non-native speakers is not the science and is not the mathematics and is not the computing. It is the correct language. Like even I as an English speaker has trouble with science speak. I cannot imagine the double barrier for non-native. So we, we try to do that. And uh, my own little pet project within it is we have neurometric kids where we develop, uh, we've had lectures and we have a little escape room uh, for kids where, uh, it's in different languages, where they learn about the mathematics for decision-making. And that was a real little, it was a labor of love, but we translated English, Arabic, Chinese, Hebrew, Spanish and French. And people gave their times and we're hoping to develop more and more of these materials as we go uh such that anyone in the world where they are shouldn't be a barrier um a language shouldn't be a barrier um so that's something i'm particularly proud of in the last over the last difficult three years academically on some level uh but very richly in the others
0: but bringing that to so many people uh, and obviously people from lots of different backgrounds does the increased diversity of people who are learning this uh and also the reducing the friction that stops them from getting their stuff published like are neuroscience experiments different in different cultures and necessarily different such that you because is there a cultural bias in the brain um, you know or does or everything boil down to language, pure, there probably is a chemistry. language thing.
1: i have a yeah. hundred i would believe there's a language aspect
0: uh, that how
1: language and it's uh, funny I was talking about uh, with my friend about um, he was really learning Irish and we were to- talking about the phrase to uchus arm like that's a very different thing to say there's a hunger upon me uh, like I f- I feel sorry or there's a sorry upon me uh, that's a very different for actually saying I am hungry I am sorry uh, and even that probably does change how you Interact with the world uh, on on a high level. I have no doubt about that. Um, uh, Neuromatch, for example, the one thing we want is diversity. Uh, Having loads of people who look almost identical to me, middle age, bearded, slightly (laughs) bald, white dude, does not result in diversity of thought. And thinking about different things and thinking about uh, that uh, more and more the more people who contribute the better the ideas will be the better the research will be yeah they might be the same kind of experiments or whatever but, you know um, being able to include more and more people i think is vital for education and for research in general like it's slightly different but on the same kind of area machine learning the reason why uh, machine learning is something that can be dangerous It's because the people making or using the data, and there are many examples of this, uh, don't consider others. They only think about themselves or not in a selfish, not in aggressively selfish way, but like, well, why would this matter to this group or that group? Um, And therefore, you have this thing of self-perpetuating data. Uh, Data says, okay. um. Group X always commit crimes, so therefore Group X always commit crimes. Without looking at the underlying cause of why Group X, they are the people who are, you know, prosecuted for crimes and so forth. And, and so they're example of that. And then, uh, so therefore, it, it's a big thing, and it's a big thing in all. Like once again, here in TU, we are pushing for it as well to have diversity in staff, students, and in all areas. You know, diversity of thought can only enrich an environment and can only enrich research questions. Um, because, you know, until someone sells you or until you see it, you're unaware of the differences. And that's like, for example, uh, if you look at something like work with people with Parkinson's or work with people with autism, anecdotal conversation from the participants might inform your next experiment. Having researchers that have some knowledge, you know, Of course, maybe you can have too much investment, um, uh, but uh, generally having that, the plethora of voices is so important. And that's why something like Neuromatch, for example, is because people learn in different ways or different rhythms and different styles. You know, it makes life, yeah, it makes life more interesting. The more complicated question that you're asking is, if everyone publishes, isn't there a lot of noise out there and that's a concern but that's a concern not because more people are publishing that's a concern because the model at the minute is that the only way people can get permanent jobs is they publish so therefore you push to publish Um, and hopefully as time changes that'll be less a push and people look for uh, more nuanced papers and more nuanced ways and there is a movement already in computational neuroscience and neuroscience in general that um Classically, when you write a paper, you send it into a journal. They're like, this is the thing that I always find hilarious. When I move from maths, is I send something I spent five years on working. I send it to a journal. They ask for money for me to publish it, mm-hmm. even though they get the reviewers who like I'd be a reviewer and I'm free. Uh, then they'll ask people to pay to read it, and all these things. I'm going, this seems odd to me. Uh, uh, but now more and more what we actually have is journals who go, okay. And also what happens is I read a paper and I might have a bias to saying I like this paper because it's in my area. I don't like this paper because it disagrees with mine. So I might stop a paper from happening. I've never, <laughs> well, since it's on record, I've never done that, but I've never done it, but that can happen now more and more. What they do is people let out their papers. And actually what happens is some of the more interesting papers will arrive. So unfortunately, some papers are lost, but you hope more and more that it democratizes that research as well. But we're very much in the infancy of this. And there are many examples right now within neuroscience and computational neuroscience where there are many uh, very smart people arguing uh, over what's the best approach. Um, And also the thing is, personally, I think things like podcasts, for example, uh, should be considered part of academic output. It's used in the arts but I think science and science communication, it shouldn't just be about papers, it should be about communicating your thing uh, um, but that's once again, it's the very thing I have a real love of is science communication and it's not for everyone but I think it should be as respected as writing um, as some
0: papers. Uh, you mentioned machine learning and Just to wrap up, based on what you've been working in the brain area for a while now, will we get to the point where the brain has been uh, codified as a machine, is predictable? And then the flip side of that is that we can truly emulate it. Like, are we 1%, 0.01%, 30% along the way of that? And then the final to of that question do you ever in your studies of the brain have the uh, sentence they were so busy trying to figure out whether they could do it they didn't ask themselves whether they should do it like do you because in everything there is like this you know if if if, if in if questions are infinite and you can go and find out as much as you possibly can uh is there a point do you do you reach a, a singularity fear in your own work
1: um, in my own work, no. But in general, um, it is a complicated question. Um, I think, once again, it kind of goes back to diversity and ethics. I think a lot more now, uh, now that computational neuroscience, neuroscience in general, are much more ethical in how they think about their research. I cannot say for machine learning, but definitely computational neuroscientists really try to think in a more think about ethics. And, and now more and more, definitely Data is taught, like data science, which I teach as well, which is machine, form of machine learning, Is ethics is brought in more and more. Uh, so I'm hoping that that filters down. So maybe I'm a, a hopeful advocate. But I want to get back to the first question about recreating the brain. Uh, there was a paper a while ago, uh, 2001, no, 2021, I mean, um, two years ago, uh, done by an Australian researcher called Ruben Ridu. And it's not a paper that people really care about, but it's a paper I was so excited by. So uh, Ruben was uh, using an artificial neural network. So an artificial neural network is a machine learning tool that is based, pr- about, uh, is based upon how the brain works, but using computing. So an artificial neural network is made up of loads of nodes, which are loosely based upon neurons. And you connect these nodes together, and you train it, so that's the machine learning, to do a task. But it's very specific, it's one task. It's not generalized, but this term, and um, I'll come to this, generalizable to AI, that's a whole complexity, but it's a very specific thing. And what Rubin did was he wrote a paper to train a neural network to do actually a, a version of an experiment where you had an area of the neural network that took in visual information, you had an area that took in non-visual information, and then it was meant to do the task, say, Did it move left or right? Which seems very artificial. Ruben then did something very interesting uh, in my mind. And it's why I got kind of excited is he also asked the neural network to say, did you move? Or did the environment move? So once again, this is a thing that we do all the time in our brains is we have to decide is is the world moving or am I moving? We have to do it all the time. And sometimes you give stimuli. And I used to do this in experiments sometimes where I would make the vision makes someone think they're moving left, but the body motion make them think they're right. And they have to resolve this. And the brain can get, does resolve it because it goes, I am moving right, but the whole world is moving the other way. So maybe something's happening. Uh, and so Ruben uh, and his colleagues uh, trained the neural network to do the task I am very familiar with. And uh, there is another group in America doing the same task. And what he found was this artificial neural network was never told anything except this is the data, this is what your answer should be, learn. The nodes, which are like the neurons in the brain, learnt activity very, very similar to what people have shown in the non-human brain that neurons do the same thing. And it's not, oh, that makes sense, they use the information together. No, the neurons did something really fascinating. There was a section of neurons that did a weird thing that uh, it it really liked body motion that was forward, but visual motion that was backwards. So they were actually repelling each other. So sometimes this neural network that's been trained to be very good at the task actually got worse because Mm. it knew that those two bits of information shouldn't go together. It learned how our brain learns things. It wasn't told to learn the rule of a neural network. It was given this very simple mathematical rule, which is called gradient descent, which is learn the quickest way. And to me, that kind of was just, Oh, neural networks are very useful for analyzing data is what they're used for, but actually they can start building models of the brain. And that is, could be very interesting as a neuroscience researcher. So we can move away from maybe doing animal research. If we can show that neural, like artificial neural networks can do something similar. They can be the mouse. Yeah. Yeah. And we can, we can probe them and experiment on them in the same way. So that's one thing. So that's, as a computational neuroscientist, as someone who wants to learn about the brain, that's fascinating. Uh,
0: what do you think is going on there? You mentioned they were given one mathematical rule. Like, is there a fundamental motivation of any neuron, be it made of silicon, pardon my ignorance, yep. or goo Stuff. <laughs> in the brain? <laughs> like, is, is there... Is there a law that says do the most with the least, protect myself? Uh, you know, is there a thing that no matter what you are, is that what yeah. is that what we're getting close to? That I the, think that's it, yeah. When that's you boil something down, down small enough, there's something that any any connected network of things, be they organic or inorganic, will strive to do if you give them like a point. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's not moral or anything. It's some sort of survival. No, no, it's
1: survival because why do I need to move? It's because I need to reach for food. So therefore I have to get the, use the least amount of energy to get the most from it. And so that's what they do. So that's why using the two bits of information together in this optimal fashion requires the least amount of energy to get the most bang for your buck in this simplified way. And it's that thing is most of the brain is actually doing A plus B. More or less. It's not much more complicated than that, but it weights A and B appropriate. And so therefore, like it, it's intrinsic in the brain, as you say, is it just really wants to get over there and that's where the nice cho- chocolate is. You know, if you watch how a child develops, really child just wants rewards. And how do we move towards a reward? You know, um, like I <laughs> I haven't <laughs> you're lucky I haven't rabbit on about the vestibular system, which is the real non uh non-visual movement thing is, but that whole system is just for survival it's to mm-hmm. make sure we know that we're not falling or to tell us that we're moving yeah. you know most of our like as much as we think about um uh, we're complex thing is the base level is survival and
0: food so so at the moment say in robots or you know ai are we talking like lizard brain is where they will be yeah, at fun, rather fun. than like love or yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. so, so when we talk about anything that we're replicating here, we are talking about the stuff that keeps us alive and that judgments of character are <laughs> Yeah, so that's a complicated are, um, thing. You know, or anything like that. Yeah, that's no, no, I know what you're stage. saying. Yeah.
1: The AI that I would want to look at for is the same as the human brain, it's the low level stuff because that's what low level stuff is that independent of moral. Um, That more complicated thing of what is something like a large language model, the chat GPT, I would say, and this gets back to the ethics, there can be ethics built into a large language model. There can be ethics built into a thing by that, you know, that's a hard thing to do, though, take in the appropriate data, know how to weight the data more appropriately. Um, uh, But that's a higher level. On the low level, like the simple stuff is whatever rule you give a neural network, it will be that rule. So I I get kind of annoyed. And and there's two headlines recently. Um, uh, One was I got fired by AI. Uh, It was this um, delivery people in London. And I don't know how delivery works, but there is something they overcharged by two pounds for three visits. The headline is wrong. They weren't fired by AI. They were fired by someone who encoded the rule. Mm. It's not the AI. So I, I think people need to understand. And then, oh yeah, it's, there's a debate. I think it's an Oxford or Cambridge coming up on Friday. That I saw the this house believes that AI is, be- is more trustworthy than a medical doctor. I don't think that's a correct debate. I think the dec- debate is. Is a medical doctor more trustworthy than a group of computer scientists who know nothing about medicine who who've fed in some papers? Mm. You know, I think I think this thing of putting agency upon AI as opposed and, and disassociating the people who coded it mm. as like AI is a bit more complicated because it does learn what someone tells it the rule to learn. So I, I, it's, it's a very nuanced conversation. But I do think people should be
0: more careful uh, about It's not AI. It's someone coded the AI. One final, final question. What are you most looking forward to getting the results of in your work over the next couple of years? Is there something brewing that you are, you can't wait to, that you're close to finding out a thing?
1: Uh, There's a very simple series of mathematical models I'm building to recreate a lot of the multi-sensory behavioral experiments. And they're tangibly close to, uh, rolling them out to present to both behaviorists uh, and people. And it's a very simple thing, but I'm very enthusiastic about multisensory evasion. A lot of people aren't. Uh, they normally look at sensory systems by themselves. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that these models will make people think, oh, multisensory is a very interesting area to look at uh, more and more for computational neuroscience. Multisensory is that step towards the wild.
0: And, and the further that whole area goes the closer we are to understanding conditions that you mentioned already like parkinson's or alzheimer's yeah, or, uh, or uh, various uh, and if you
1: look if you look at so many complicated uh, disorders like autism and parkinson's which seem to have people have a very defined opinion of it but they are common disorders which means that there is a smorgasbord of sensory and behavioral differences And if there's a smorgasbord of sensory and behavioral differences, maybe you need to look at each of them separately and look at different things. Because like people uh, don't think about like the sensory issues their auditory hallucinations are quite common uh, in certain disorders. And my own work, I hope over next while the little models I'm doing uh, and I'll be able to roll them out to some of my collaborators who are looking at aging and different things and go, hey, you have a behavioral paper. Let me just take this small bit and put this little addendum to your paper um uh and maybe it can address something interesting um uh and that's what i'm quite excited by you know um and then on a more fun level uh more and more developing uh stuff for a wider audience for kids and whatnot uh i <laughs> it's the thing is uh, i have a a daughter and uh, you use your daughter sometimes and it has influenced me quite heavily which is daft because you should like kids before that but I think a lot about her when I do my research now I think mm. about like you know um uh like I, I why I wanted to develop the things for kids is so I could show her about what I do on a day-to-day as well uh, and um she's still at that level that she is proud of me
0: and not not embarrassed by me yeah. uh, uh give it a year or two more uh, but but also, uh, that uh, depending on what age she is, she is the other diverse uh, researcher because her age will lead her to ask questions that maybe nobody else in the room will ask. Yeah,
1: no, no. And that's one thing I didn't mention is the great thing for me about moving fields was,
0: uh, and this is a very
1: wrong conclusion people have, people think mathematicians are smart. We're just good at one thing. Um uh, but when I moved into neuroscience, people, uh, A, assumed, oh, he has a PhD in math, so he must be bright enough. But B, he knows nothing about neuroscience. So c- I could ask the stupidest question about, like, what's a neuron, uh, like, for uh, what's a vestibular? I didn't know what the vestibular system was, and I was meant to be researching it. And people would answer me honestly. And there's something gloriously freeing about a child or being an idiot uh, to ask us the simple but hard questions. And that's something I, like I, that's why it's so lovely. Like I, when I go out to talk to kids uh, that you get this variety of questions. Um, if you can't communicate your materials or your research or your equations to a younger crowd, you don't know them, you have a feel for them. You do not have that, like that, your fingers aren't dirty. And you do not have to dump something down when talking to kids. You do not have to oversimplify. You'd be amazed about the complexity that children can understand. They might not understand differential equations, but for example, I, uh, use, uh, these things called predator prey equations, which are how predator prey interact. And, uh, I teach them to fourth year mathematicians. I also go into primary schools and teach the same equations and the kids have no issue understanding what happens. They have no issue understanding. And those same equations I use to describe the brain isn't predator prey, but there are two areas of the brain fighting each other. And you have to talk about which dominates. Uh, And so those equations might seem abstract, but actually kids get really quickly. Uh, And I know Europe being the climate, like uh, we even use them to say in a simple predator prey, uh, you know, the reintroduction of wolves that happened in Yosemite. Mathematically, actually, you can predict that very lovely outcome if you include that the herbivores are predators of the grass you know i use these simple examples that embed mathematics in a more tangible world i think is so important and that's why i love neuroscience because it embeds my mathematics in a tangibility that i really love and enjoy
0: That was John Butler there. My thanks to him for joining me on The Function Room. You can get The Function Room wherever you get your podcasts. If you like it, please share. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.